Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is Series 2, Episode 4, Public Enemy. Now, you know I've bought that there exercise bike. <laughs> yes, I do. In an attempt to exercise my heart, as I've realised, you know, now going into my 50s, I need some cardiovascular exercise. What do you mean going into your 50s? You're well into your 50s, mate. I don't think I'm well into my 50s. I would say I've dipped my toe into the 50s. But anyway, this is all by the by. The thing is, when one is on an exercise bike, one needs some form of motivation to pedal away because it's pretty tough going. It is, yes. And so what better than to listen to the tunes of the mighty public enemy. Yeah, okay. So that's what I've been doing. I've been wheeling away to the sounds of Chuck D, Flavor Flav and et al. Very good. I mean, it, yes, it really helps to have motivational music when you exercise. It does indeed. This is what I found. But it also served as a reminder of when I was a young lad mm. in little old rural Norfolk there. It was 1987 and a pal of mine got tickets to the Def Jam tour. Right. For those who don't know, Def Jam was the record label set up by Rick Rubin, who signed all of those yeah. fantastic hip-hop acts of the mid-80s. And at the time, you may recall, there was a bit of hysteria in the mainstream press about hip-hop. Yes. That it was dangerous. Yeah. It was anti-establishment. And it was threatening. Yeah. It was also around the time, of course, that the Beastie Boys were around. Yes. Do you remember there was that craze of stealing Volkswagen badges yes. off cars? Yeah. And it all felt a little bit... Edgy and dangerous. Anyway, being a gullible teen that I was, I was, and I'm, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say this, I was actually too afraid to go. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I was thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, what a terrible missed opportunity it was. Who was the friend that had the tickets? It was the chief. Good old yeah. chief. And he survived, he lived to tell the tale. He lived to tell the tale. And of course, because of my gullibility and fear, mm. I missed Public Enemy, uh, LL Cool J yeah. and Eric B and Rakeem. Yeah. And uh, I just feel a little bit sick about that mm. now, given that that was the golden age of hip hop. And the tickets, by the way, £5.50. Wow, yeah. The good old days. The good old days. Right, so Public Enemy were formed in 1985 mm -hmm. uh, by Chuck D and Flavor Flav. And, you know, obviously Flavor Flav is famous for his, yeah, boy, yeah. shouts. But apparently he is something of a musician and he can play, so Chuck D has claimed, 15 musical instruments, including piano and drums. Right. And apparently when they've gone on tour and stayed in hotels, old Flavor Flav has played the piano in some... Uh, hotel foyers, much to the um, bemusement. bemusement of uh, the punters there. Can you imagine you go into a hotel and you're on your holidays and there's old uh, Flavor Flav playing uh, Tinkling the Ivories? That would be quite something to see. And here's an interesting thing about old Chuck D. Yeah. Now he has claimed to be the maternal great-grandson of a man called George Washington Foster. Mm. Right, who was an architect in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Right. And during his career, George Washington Foster worked for the prominent architect 
Henry Hardenberg. And Henry Hardenberg's company designed a number of New York landmarks, and it is thought that Chuck D's great-grandfather would have worked on the Dakota Building, oh, right. which we know most famously is where John Lennon and Yoko Ono lived, oh. and in fact where John Lennon was, was, shot. was shot in 1980. There are 65 apartments in the complex, mm. and mm -hmm. if you could afford to buy one of them, you would have to jump through a lot of hoops to get approval from the co-op yeah. board, yeah. who apparently are very, very picky as to whom they grant residency mm. to. And apparently many famous people have been declined over the years, including mm. Melanie Griffiths and Antonio oh, Banderas. Wow! Yeah, Madonna. You can imagine the board are full of older, conservative, snobby people. Yeah. And they would probably think, well, Madonna's far too... Edgy. Edgy and risque. Other people who have been declined? Mm. Cher? Oh, well, she dances around in tights, so... Yeah, she she's wouldn't... trouble. But what about Billy Joel? Oh, Billy Joel? You yeah. think they'd, be, they'd love Billy Joel? They love old Billy Joel down he there. He could play in the foyer as well. He could play in the <laughs> foyer, yeah. There are obviously quite strict conditions in living there, and one of which is you can't be playing any music after 11pm. Right, so, yeah. That's, probably why, they, uh, that's yeah. probably why they didn't want Madonna in there. Yeah. Yeah, and Yoko Ono still uh, lives there. She claimed to have seen the ghost of John Lennon there as well. And Lauren Bacall also mm -hmm. had an apartment there and claimed that she'd actually heard the gunshot that killed John Lennon, but at the time dismissed it as probably a car backfiring. Oh, wow. She was there living there at the time. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, when Bacall died mm. in 1989, her mm. apartment was sold for a cool, check this out, 23.5 million mm. US dollars. Mm. Well, we'll get an apartment there one day, honey. Speaking of Lauren Bacall. Oh, yeah. I did a little bit of Googleage of her. Okay, good. Her given name was Betty Joan Persk. Okay. But because her parents divorced when she was just five, her mother changed their surname right. in quite an inventive way. Okay. Her mother's maiden name was Weinstein. Okay. Which, did you know, means wine glass in Yiddish. I didn't know that. And since she had Romanian heritage, she translated it to the Romanian equivalent, which is bocal, oh. which evolved into bacal. Okay, so a bocal is a... Wine glass in, in Romanian. Romanian. There you go, that might prove useful one day. Yeah. And do you know how bacal's low and husky speaking voice became a famous trademark for her? Oh, she's got an absolutely great voice, you know, didn't she? Yeah. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Well, you know, she actually had to contrive to speak that way. Okay. After the director, Howard Hawke, suggested she get vocal training in order to disguise the high nasally voice she had at the time. Oh. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs> and there's also a vocal disorder named after her and Humphrey Bogart called Bacall-Bogart syndrome. What? Yeah, it's a voice disorder caused by abuse or overuse of the vocal cords, apparently. And the people most commonly affected are those who speak in a low-pitched voice, particularly if they have poor breath and right. vocal control. Wow, I, I wonder if old Barry White had a bit of trouble with that. Well, I think he was naturally deep, wasn't he? Oh, I see. So it's people who contrive. I see. Got it. Yeah. In an attempt to maintain the pitch and volume of the voice, sufferers tend to try to keep speaking when the air in their lungs is nearly exhausted. I see, right. And this causes the muscles involved in breathing and speech to become tense and strained. Interesting. And, of course, it's well known that Bacall married 
Humphrey Bogart. Of course, famously. Until his death in 1957. But did you know that after Bogart's death, Frank Sinatra proposed to her? Oh, okay, I didn't know that. And she accepted. All right. But when their engagement was leaked to the press by one of Bacall's loose-tongued friends, right. old Blue Eyes was displeased and he pretty much ghosted her and the marriage never happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bacall later described how Frank behaved, quotation marks, like a shit. <laughs> okay, well, rewinding back to Def Jam. Yeah. The tour I failed to see because I was a big scaredy cat. Yeah. And its founder, Rick Rubin. Um, I was doing a bit of Googling there of old Rick Rubin, and uh, I have found some interesting shiz about him. Okay. Okay, so he started his career in music by learning to play the guitar in high school. Mm -hmm. And he formed a band rather inventively called The Pricks. Oh, nice. I like it. They, they, that sounds like a punk band. I think Exactly. They were a punk band. I think you're really setting out your stall if you're going to call yourself The Pricks. Yeah. There's, you're going to be a certain... T you're not going to yeah. be playing... Country and Western. <laughs> Although I would love to see a country and western band called The Pricks because you just wouldn't know where your head was, would yeah. you? And The Pricks played the famous New York club CBGB's. Oh, yeah. Um, which is where, of course, famously the Ramones, Talking Heads and Blondie oh, sort right, of cut okay. their teeth, right? Mm. But, yeah, The Pricks were thrown out of the venue mm. after getting into a scuffle with audience members. <laughs> However... This was all orchestrated by Rubin and the band. Oh, um, right. What they did apparently was they'd planted some of their mates into the audience yeah. and told them, right, kick off yeah. at a certain point, then there'll be a good, and then we'll, we'll create a buzz yeah. around the band. Oh. And um, a cop supposedly came in to break it up. That was Rick Rubin's dad, who was an auxiliary cop working for the Long Island Police Force. He put his uniform on, steamed in and broke up the fight oh, wow. in order to add to the uh, authenticity of this fight. Also relating to hip-hop and its history, Oh yeah. you'll recall that the Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight was the first rap song to enter the charts in America. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first to contain a sample. The song sampled Sheik's Good Times. We all have good times. Great tune. But since this was the pioneering days of hip hop and there was no precedent, permission for the sample wasn't sought after. Oh, okay. Right, and the first Nile Rogers heard of the song yeah. was in a nightclub with Debbie Harry at, when the DJ played it. He played Rapper's Delight and Niall Rogers obviously... <laughs> he said, hang on a minute. I, I recognise this. So he and Bernard Edwards of Chic and co-writers of Good Times threatened legal action oh, right. and settled out of court okay. and they've been subsequently credited as co-writers. Ah, okay. And since then, Good Times has been sampled a lot. And the bass line was pretty much nicked by John Deacon for Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. Yeah, so it's just the end bit that Deacon changed. Yeah, it's not identical. And John Deacon described it as merely an inspiration after hanging out with Sheik when they were in the same recording studio. 
And talking of Another One Bites the Dust. Yeah. Back in the early 80s, Christian evangelists allege it contains subliminal messages through a technique called backmasking. Backmasking, okay. Backmasking is when a recording is played backwards in a song. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which of course the Beatles did, didn't they? Yeah. Quite a lot. Um, it was claimed that the chorus, when played in reverse, can be heard as decide to smoke marijuana. What? And it's fun to smoke marijuana <laughs> or start to smoke marijuana. Let's have a listen. Understandably, the band and record company have both said the claim is a load of bollocks. <laughs> well, I'd have to agree with them. Side note, backmasking in popular music has been described as auditory pareidolia. Pareidolia. Which is the tendency for perception to impose a meaningful interpretation on a nebulous stimulus, usually visual, so that one sees an object, pattern or meaning where there is none. Oh, I see. There was a period in the 80s when um, these Christian groups in the United States were really getting their knickers in a twist and alleged that backmasking was being used by prominent rock musicians for satanic purposes. Yeah, I remember it. They were getting in a right old tears, weren't they? Yeah, leading to record burning protests and proposed anti-backmasking legislation by state and federal governments. And it was around that time when the band Judas Priest were taken yes. to court after two of their fans, Raymond Belknap, and James Vance had committed suicide allegedly after listening to one of their records backwards. Oh yeah, I do that sort of vaguely in my memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the allegation was that Judas Priest had included lyrics played back in reverse, subliminally instructing listeners to try suicide, do it, and let's be dead in their album track Better by You, Better than Me. Wow. Influencing the two lads to form a suicide pact and they shot themselves. Good grief. James Vance initially survived his suicide attempt and he and his family tried to sue the band for $6.2 million, hence the court case. Wow. And the judge found in favour of the band. Now, this led me to delve into the world of backmasking. Ooh. On the 19th of April, 1981, English extreme metal band Venom released the song In League With Satan. <laughs> Don't really need to play that backwards, do you? This is perhaps the earliest instance of a true backmast message referencing Satan. Okay. It was recorded in January 1981, which included a backmast message. Satan raised in hell, raised in hell. I'm going to burn your soul, crush your bones. I'm going to make you bleed. You're going to bleed for me. I mean, what? I Charming. Don't, I don't quite understand why they had to include a backmasked message when the song is actually called In League with Satan. One of the most famous backmasking stories involved the Beatles, of course, when in 1969, American DJ Russ Gibb received a phone call from a student at Eastern Michigan University, identified only as Tom, who claimed the ridiculous rumour that Paul McCartney had died and oh, that yes. the Beatles song Revolution 9 contained a backward message confirming the rumour. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that's on the White Album, isn't it? Yeah. Gibb played the song backwards on his turntable and heard, Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Turn me on, dead man. And DJ Russ Gibb began telling his listeners about what he called the great cover-up. Oh, yeah, the great Paul McCartney is dead yeah. conspiracy. Yeah, and another backmasked message, Paul is a dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him, is contained in the Beatles song I'm So Tired on the White Album. Right. Let's hear it and make our own assessment of it. Yes, let's. May I say, scolob fodole a tour. You've just backmasked. What <laughs> yeah. does that mean? What a load of bollocks. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.